We are finally finishing the Gospel of Luke tonight, Luke chapter 24. And as I've told you before, I'm not nearly as long-winded as some other preachers that I know. So uh, a little over a year is not too bad on a gospel this size. Um, in fact, uh, I think it was uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a famous pastor and, oh goodness, the church where he pastored has escaped me now. But he pastored there for years and years, and he spent years and years uh, in the book of Romans, expositing verse by verse. And, I mean, it took him several years to get through Romans. And he wrote, I want to say it's like a 15-volume commentary set just on the book of Romans. And Romans has 16 chapters, so he almost did one volume per chapter. Um, one of those kind of things that, yeah. So so it could be worse. Uh <laughs> It could be worse, but um, we are at the end of the Gospel of Luke, and I want to turn your attention. Um, let me. We're going to read verses thirty-six through fifty-three. We're going to read the end of the chapter, uh, uh, and, and then we're going to come back, and I want to focus on one thing in particular about this. Okay, so stand with me as we read Luke twenty-four verses thirty-six through fifty-three. As they were talking about these things, um, talking about the things that had happened with the disciples seeing Jesus on the road to Emmaus, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay until the city until you are clothed with power from on high. When he led them out as far as Bethany, then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. Pray with me. Father, as we uh, finally in this gospel, as we consider the last things that Luke has to say about Jesus's earthly life and earthly ministry, we recognize this isn't the end of the story. Uh, Luke would write a whole nother volume, picking up right where he leaves off and showing a church obedient as the spirit comes upon them to carry your gospel all the way to Rome. And in fact, we're living in a time where we are completing the mission. It's not done yet. Still a lot of work ahead. But Lord, we can see that this mission that has been going on for 2,000 years 
We can see it, even in our time, still being fulfilled, still being carried out, and we get to be part of it. Father, help us as we seek to honor you. Help us to be part of your story. Use the reading and preaching of your word to change our hearts. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Um, I told you I wanted to focus on one thing. We're going to focus on one particular aspect of this passage, but just to kind of lay the, lay kind of what happens. Um, they are the disciples, uh, that had seen Jesus on the road to Emmaus. They realize it's Jesus when he breaks the bread. He's gone. And now they run back to Jerusalem to tell the disciples what has happened. And as they're there, as they're talking, it's getting to be late. So you can imagine that they are expecting uh there that there's this there's this air in the room of what is going to happen now i mean we 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 woke up this morning grieving the loss of our lord and then the women come and say we can't find the body and there's these angels john and peter go see for themselves they don't see angels but they see an empty tomb what is going on here there's a commotion there's a whole ruckus that's going about. And this evening, now some disciples who are traveling out of town have run back into town to say they've seen the risen Jesus. It's, it's quite an exciting day, to say the least. And then Jesus shows up. He actually comes in their midst. We don't know if the door was locked and he comes through the door. We don't know if he just appears. We don't know if, if he just opens the door and walks right in. We don't know how he comes in. Doesn't matter. He's there. It <laughs> doesn't really matter how God enters. It's the fact that God enters the picture. The fact that God has shown up. That's, that's what's most important. Who cares how he got there? But he's there and he says, peace to you. Now, I don't know why, but supernatural beings often will do this. The first thing they will say, angels will say, peace be to you. Right? It's, it's, it's almost one of the first things that, that comes out of their mouths. And what usually happens? We freak out. <laughs> right? No wonder. I, I think it's kind of funny because he tells them peace and it scares them. <laughs> Is this a ghost? The, the word for spirit here. Is it a phantasma? Is it something to be afraid of? No, it's, it's the risen Jesus. And the way he proves it to him, he says, look, look up him, see? Look at my feet, look at my hands. In fact, li- listen to how he puts it. Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? <laughs> why are you troubled? Because we're mere mortals, Jesus. We, we don't understand the things of God. He's got the advantage. He is God. It's a good thing he's got the advantage. It's like someone sitting on the dock with a life preserver and you're drowning. Right? You want him to have the advantage. You need him to have the advantage. But listen to what he says. He says, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Do you get the point? He appeals to their senses. He doesn't give them a theological lecture. He just says, open your eyes and see. You remember what he had to do with those disciples on the road to Emmaus, right? See, their eyes were closed. But when he breaks the bread, their eyes are open so they can see that it's him. He appeals to the senses. He says, look, right here, touch them. 
Remember Thomas? Unless I see the marks with my hands and or see them with my eyes and touch them with my hands, I will not believe. I don't blame him for being that way. You can hear all kinds of different rumors and things, but I want to know. I get that about Thomas. Jesus says here, no, touch, see. God is not afraid of examination. It's, it's, it's a beautiful truth that he is willing he is willing to be examined. Truth doesn't have to be afraid of examination. It's got nothing to hide. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. While, while they still disbelieved for joy, they couldn't even believe it. They were so happy. Have you ever been that way? <laughs> you ever thought, how in the world is this even possible? They, they disbelieved for joy. They, they couldn't even believe what they were seeing because they were so overjoyed at what it meant. They disbelieved for joy and were marveling. He says, I'm hungry. You got some food? (laughs) And he eats. And then he says, these are the words that I spoke to you. And this is where I want our focus to be. As amazing as it is to see Jesus, they still haven't seen Jesus. They've seen him. They've seen his hands and his feet. They know that it's him. They're, They're disbelieving for joy. But they still don't quite get it. And this is where the eureka moment comes. This is where the, ah, the light bulb goes off. We were in a math class one time, and um, the, the professor was doing a proof of something up on the board. And I've, I saw what he was doing. You know, sometimes you get to a point where you kind of see where this is headed, and you get where it's going, and, and, and there's that, that light bulb goes off on your head. And I visibly said, ah, like, like I, I couldn't help it. It was like, just like, oh, that's, that's pretty, that's pretty neat, you know, because I saw where it was going. I saw how it was going to end up. And he said, see, see there, that's what I'm talking about. And he was talking about that moment. We get to that moment where we see where things are going and it, the light bulb goes off. This is what happens with the disciples in this moment. And I want you to see what it is that causes it. He said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. You remember three times in the gospel of Luke, three times Jesus says, I'm going to die. Do you remember that? I remember that. I preached that. I hope you remember it. I hope you at least remember of it. Luke 9, verse 21, Jesus has just said, you are Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, and and, uh, the Bible says, and he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the son of man must suffer many days and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. A little bit later, same chapter, but while, verse 43, but while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, here they are marveling again. Jesus was just that kind of fellow easy to marvel at. Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. (laughs) Now you need to listen. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying. It was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Probably afraid that he was going to (laughs) tell them that they lacked faith. Chapter 18, verse 31, and taking the 12, he has just, by the way, given the parable of the rich ruler. You know the one. The rich ruler comes up to him and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
And he, he gives all these different commandments. And, and the ruler says, I've done all these. What else do I lack? And he says, go sell your possessions, give the money to the poor, and then come follow me. And he says that it's easier for the, it's hard for the rich man to enter heaven. It's easier to get a camel through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven because of the attachment to possessions. And people are asking, who can be saved? And basically he says, the one who's willing to give up everything. And it's right after this. He takes the 12. He said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Notice what he connects it to. He says, we're going to go up to Jerusalem and everything that was written about the Son of Man is about to be fulfilled. It's about to happen right in front of you. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon and after flogging him, they will kill him. He's not sparing detail. He's not talking in the Nostradamus kind of style of such vagaries that you can match any kind of historical event you want to it. He is speaking specifically about what's going to happen because the prophets spoke specifically. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. You see, three times Jesus has told them that he is to die and to rise again. Three times. Once he specifies, this is exactly what the prophets have said would happen. And you're about to see it. And now on the backside of it, they have the resurrected Jesus in front of them with the nail scars in his hands and his feet. They can see the evidence of the crucifixion that he has endured. They can see all of the events have taken place that the prophets have said just as they said it would have. But still, they don't see it. Still, their eyes are still closed. They, they, maybe, maybe they saw shadows, light and dark. Maybe they saw rough outlines of what was going on, but they didn't quite get it. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Listen. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. God has been saying this from the very beginning. He will crush the serpent's head and the serpent shall bruise his heel. Even from the Garden of Eden, God has been telling them what his plan was. But it's been hidden. It's been cloaked. Not because God is a terrible God and doesn't want you to know, but because God has been working his plan. And now, now with the risen Christ, now that it is accomplished, now that it is finished, God can open up their eyes so that they will see what he's been doing all along. I don't know if you're in a spot right now where you're really questioning what is God doing. Um, if that's you, can I give you a piece of comfort? One day you'll understand. Your eye doesn't see it now. I, I get that. I'm living it. But you don't have to see it quite yet. One day you'll know. One day you'll look back and you'll see all of this working together. It might be after you're gone. It might be after you've already gone into heaven. Or it might be before. I don't know. But eventually, God will open your eyes and you'll see it. In the meantime, in the meantime, just know that God is doing his work. Then, verse 45, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. They had all the pieces of the puzzle. They just didn't know how to put it together. 
Mitchell came to me one day and he said, this puzzle is weird. He's working on a puzzle. I think this puzzle is weird, Daddy. I didn't know what he meant. A little bit later, I went downstairs and I looked at the table where he was working on the puzzle and I figured out it's a round puzzle. It is weird. You know, the nice rectangle puzzles that we're, we're used to, the pieces are kind of a certain way. But sometimes certain puzzles are just weird. They're cut weird. Uh, I saw one puzzle piece that was all, it was like a, a brain teaser kind of a puzzle. And it had puzzle pieces and all of them were corner pieces. And you had to make them fit in a box. It was, yeah, it, it was just, that was weird, right? They had all the puzzle pieces. They didn't know where to start solving it until Jesus opened their mind to understand the scriptures. Notice he didn't open their mind to hear the scripture. They had heard the scripture. He didn't open their mind to understand the words of the scripture. I have a firm belief that most Jews of that day could tell you what the scripture said about the Messiah. If not completely, then almost completely. They could give you, most Jews, especially devout ones, could give you a good sense of what Messiah would do and be like. In fact, I'm convinced that most people today can give you a sense of what we need God to do. If God is real, what would we need him to be and do? I'm convinced most people can tell you, well, if God's real, he's probably like this. And if they're honest with themselves and honest with you, I bet they could give you a pretty good description of God. May not be perfect. May not have all of, of everything in the exact perfect sense may not be able to use the, the theological words, but I think most people have a good idea of what God is like. But until God opens our minds, until he helps us to understand what he has said, that knowledge will be less than what we need. Because when we're trying to reason God, it doesn't work. Because I don't like a God who is hidden in the shadows. I don't like a God who is beyond my comprehension. Not, not in a, not in a physical sense, not in a fleshly sense. I love the fact that I can't understand God in a spiritual sense because I really don't want to understand God because if I can understand God, he ain't much of a God. I like a God who's beyond me. I need a God who's beyond me. <laughs> Amen. I mean, can you imagine if I understood God? Y'all be in trouble. The fact that I can't comprehend them completely is a good thing. But in my flesh, I want to know. And I want to know so much. I want to know it so well that I could explain it to someone and they can know too. I want to know it so well that I can just give this perfect little five-minute description and everybody leave knowing exactly all about God. That's how I would want it to be in my flesh. I don't like a God who's mysterious, who's hidden from my understanding, not in my flesh. I suspect that God makes himself cloaked in mystery to avoid what happens when men's heads get too big for their, for themselves. When, when, when our heads swell and we get too big for our britches and we think that we're all that in a bag of chips. I suspect that God remaining hidden from us is one way that he humbles us. But he doesn't want to be completely hidden. He's revealed himself in the scriptures. Notice the division. He says, everything written about me in the law of Moses. He goes to the law. What's written about him in the law? All kinds of stuff. 
You know that passage uh, in the Garden of Eden that that um, that you'll have a, des- a descendant that will be at enmity with the serpent, and and he will crush the serpent's head, and the serpent will bruise his heel. That's in Genesis, right? That's part of what the Jews considered the law. In Exodus, we meet a holy, righteous God. A God who cannot bear sin. A God who is giving His Ten Commandments up on the mountaintop with Moses that no other Israelite will go up because they're afraid of getting too close to that God or being struck down dead. A God who says, I am God. Here's how you'll walk before me. And of course the people, they don't, they're, they're down casting an idol out of gold. Aaron is making a golden calf for them to worship while Moses is up on the mountain and Moses comes down and sees it and what's Aaron's excuse? I just threw it in the fire and out came this calf. Yeah, uh Sure. That's how we treat God so often but yet we find a holy, righteous, pure God. A God who expects of us to walk in His ways. Be ye holy for I am holy. That's in the law. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's in the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That's in the law. The law shows us the righteousness and holiness of God and our requirement to live in light of that holiness and righteousness. That's what he shows us. And he shows us that God's servant will walk in God's ways perfectly. What's written about me in the law of Moses, he also mentions the prophets. What's written about him in the prophets? Oh, all kinds of stuff. It's in the prophets that we hear, for unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. That's in the prophets. In the prophets, I will give you a new heart. I will remove your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh and you will know me that I am the Lord. No longer will a man talk to his neighbor and say, know the Lord, for they will all know me. For I will write my law upon their hearts. We find in the prophets the promise of a renewed temple in which God resides, in which God dwells, not just comes down to meet with the people. It's not a tent of meeting. It's God's dwelling place. The presence of God constantly there among men. And what happens? Streams begin to flow from that place, from that holy of holies up under that temple, coming out of of the threshold, coming down the sides of the mountains into the Dead Sea. Water that is so fresh, so pure, that it purifies the deadest sea in the world, the most salt-laden sea of the world, and makes it teeming with life. Why? Because it's God who's doing it. We find in God that Messiah That name Messiah is used more in prophets than any other section of the Old Testament and for good reason. They point all directly to the Messiah. Moses has pointed us to the Messiah in God's holiness and righteousness. Now the prophets are pointing us to God's Messiah in the things that He will do, the restoration that He will bring to Israel and to all the nations, being a light for the entire world, bringing all the nations into God's house to worship and serve Him. And it's all going to be done through his Messiah. The Psalms. The Psalms. What do the Psalms have to say about Jesus? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know where Jesus quoted that from? Psalm 22. That's the one right before Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. Isn't that interesting? 
Where is Jesus in the Psalms? He's all over. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right feet while I make your enemies your footstool. We find him in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. For his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the no- for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. He's showing us the character of Christ. Why are the nations rage? Do peoples plot in vain? He who sits in heaven last. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my King on Zion, my holy hill. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the son lest he be angry. He is a shield about David in Psalm 3. He is the refuge in Psalm 7. He is the one who is majestic in all the earth in Psalm 8. I could go on for all 150 psalms if you like, but I think you get the point. Even in poetry, even in the writings of heartbrokenness, he's the one creating a clean heart and renewing a right spirit within David in Psalm 51. He's the one who sets the sun in the heavens and rejoices to run its course in Psalm 19. His words are the delight of the writer of Psalm 119. So much so that he says it in 176 different verses, just how great God's words are and just how much they mean to him. You might find it interesting that he combines those three things. I do. Because that was pretty much the way the Hebrews thought of the Bible. Torah, law, Nevi'im, prophets, and Ketuvim, writings. The ways of God told in the law the calls to repentance in the prophets, the expressions of worship and emotion given over to God in the writings, considerations of wisdom, all these things point us to Jesus Christ. So when he opens their minds to understand the scriptures, he's not just showing them what God has said, he's putting it together for them. The puzzle lay before them and they were lost until Jesus puts the pieces in the right order, and now they see. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. You are witnesses of these things. You've seen it. Don't get too excited yet. Stay here. Remain in the city until I give you power. It's interesting. At this point, you would expect him to send them off. Instead, he tells them, well, hold hold up, slow down. You don't have the power yet. You get it. You understand it. You finally realize what you've been missing all this time. But but hang on. I'm going to clothe you with power. And then you're really going to go. And then he takes them a little bit out to Bethany. Bethany. Who who lived in Bethany again? Y'all remember? Y'all remember? A couple sisters, brother, Mary and Martha, Lazarus. It's a place they had been numerous times as disciples. And he, and I 
can't help but think that they had a favorite spot there. Maybe you could kind of look around and see a tree that was withered down and dead because it wasn't bearing fruit. Perhaps you could get a glimpse in the right season, if you tilt your head just right, that city of Jerusalem off in the distance. The olive trees, beautiful scenery. What does he do? What's his last act on earth before he is taken away from them, before he is parted from them, before he's carried up into heaven, as this version puts it? What's his last action? What's the last thing he does? What is he doing while he is being carried into heaven? He blesses them. I, I, I missed this originally. Turn back to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 9. Aaron offers an offering to God. It is, it is, it's a long process. Chapter 9 verses 1 through 21 describe um, this offering that would be given to God and describes Aaron doing it. He's killing the calf. He's um, dipping his finger in the blood and putting it on the horns of the altar just as God had commanded. He's taking certain parts out that are not to be burned according to God's commandment. He is... He's doing several offerings, in fact. And then verse, verse 21, he, he, he's completed everything that God has commanded him to do in this offering. And then look at verse 22. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. He has completed the sacrifices, and now his high priestly duty is to turn toward the people, lift up his hands, and pronounce the blessing of God upon them because God has accepted the offering. We know that he's accepted the offering because Aaron's still alive. <laughs> if Aaron didn't, uh, didn't give a proper offering, everybody would have known it. He'd have been killed on the spot. If God was not happy with what he was doing, God would have made that known. But instead, God has accepted the offering because it was pleasant. Because his, his people had done what they were supposed to do. His priest had made the offering the way that it was supposed to be made. Had, had respected God and had followed his commandments in the process. And so now having, having the offering accepted by God, having the sins of the people forgiven by God, he can now turn to them, lift up his hands to them and pronounce the blessing upon them. Not a blessing that comes from him, but a blessing that comes from God through him upon the people of Israel. So here's Jesus having made a perfect sacrifice, a sacrifice once for all sins. And as he is being lifted off the ground and into heaven, he is pronouncing the blessing of God upon God's people. By the way, what happened after that? They went to the tent of meeting, they came out and they blessed the people again, and then the people saw the glory of God. Luke chapter 24. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven and they worshiped him. I'm, I don't remember any other time in this whole gospel that it just says they worshiped him. I remember they worshiped him, but some doubted. I remember that. But now the worship is pure and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. And they don't even have the power from on high yet. Just imagine how much better it's going to be when the Holy Spirit comes down. We'll have to do a study of the book of Acts in the not-too-distant future. 
and see how this develops. In the meantime, pray with me. Father, you, in, even in your going, <laughs> you started this, this gospel. Luke started this gospel in the temple. A man named Zacharias in the temple serving you, finding out that his wife was going to bear a son and it, it would end up being John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Christ. And now he ends in the temple with the disciples of that Christ blessing God fulfilling the high priestly role, not just of blessing the people, but of offering the sacrifice that brings blessing upon the people. We've seen in the law and in the prophets and in the Psalms, throughout all of the scriptures, we've seen your son magnified and glorified. Lord, open our minds, not just to understand them, but to live in light of them. Help us in our complete confidence. Luke wrote this gospel that we would know Lord, help us know far beyond our minds. Help us know beyond our hearts. Help us know with our hands and feet, with our words and our actions. Help us know in every aspect of our lives. Help us know with our muscles as we work for you. Help us know with our souls as we live for you. Help us know with our hearts as we adore you. Thank you for not being completely knowable but for being knowable nonetheless. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. May we honor you with our lives and bring others to know you too. In Jesus' name, amen.